we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In October 1492, Christopher Columbus arrived on the Caribbean island we know today as Haiti. There he was met by the native Taino Arawak tribe. The tribe was friendly and engaging to Columbus and his men, exchanging gifts with the Spaniards and volunteering their help. Columbus's first reaction was to pen a letter to Queen Isabella of Spain announcing to her that these natives were tractable and easily led and that they could be made to grow crops and build cities. Columbus named this new island La Isla Española, which literally translates to the Spanish island. Years later, the Spanish missionary Bartolome de las Casas would shorten the name to just Española. Further revisions over the years would change it even further to Hispaniola. The earliest documented map of the island created by André de Morales referred to the mountainous regions as Monte de Haiti. Eventually, De La Casas would simply begin referring to the entire island by the name Haiti, although that name wouldn't be officially adopted until centuries later. When Columbus returned to Europe in 1493, a group of Spaniards remained behind and built a fort on the island called La Navidad. These men immediately began a campaign of stealing from, enslaving, and raping the natives. In several cases, they kidnapped female members of the native tribes to serve as their personal sex slaves. They also forced enslaved tribesmen to work in their gold and copper mines. Some of the natives, who became known as Maroons, escaped into the remote mountains and began organizing attacks on the Spanish settlements. In response, the Spanish ordered up reinforcements from Europe, bringing with them vicious attack dogs trained to kill, and set them loose. In 1495, the Spanish sent 500 captured Tainos back to Spain, Of that first group, only 300 survived the long journey across the ocean. The original plan the Spaniards had was to begin sending as many as 4,000 slaves from the island back to Europe each year. But the one thing they didn't account for was supply and demand. We don't know exactly how many native Taino people were on the island prior to Columbus's arrival. Estimates range anywhere from several thousand to eight million. But what we do know is that the Spaniards reaped utter devastation on the native population. Within 10 years of the Spaniards first setting foot on Haiti's shores, it's estimated that at least 2 million island natives were dead, and that number kept climbing. The Spanish managed to wipe out so much of the native population that this left a massive shortage in their workforce. So they turned to another option after that, importing slaves to the island from Africa. It was Columbus's son Diego who started the African slave trade in the Caribbean. 
but upon arriving in Haiti, some slaves managed to escape and join forces in the mountains with the Taino Maroons, who had been staging their own guerrilla war against the Spanish. Beginning in 1519, a combined force of enslaved Africans and Tainos started a slave uprising that managed to seriously damage the control the Spanish had over Haiti sometime in the 1530s. The Spanish ceded control of the western part of the island of Hispaniola to the French in the Treaty of Ryswick in 1697. France named their new colony San Domingue. This colony would go on to become the richest in the world, based on its usage of slave labor in its coffee and sugar plantations. By 1789, there would be almost a half million enslaved Africans in San Domingue. By that time, the French were importing around 30,000 slaves each year. Thousands of Africans died each year as a result of the French slave trade. It was far cheaper for the French to import more slaves from Africa than it was to improve living conditions for the enslaved people it already had. Pregnant slaves seldom lived long enough to actually give birth. Food was scarce and starvation was rampant. Enslaved Africans were expected to grow food for themselves on their own time, on top of working their brutal 12-hour workdays. 1789 also marked the beginnings of what is considered to be the only successful slave uprising in the Caribbean. As I mentioned, by that year there were half a million slaves in the French part of the island, but there were also only 30,000 whites setting the stage for a massive uprising to begin. In 1791, slaves staged a result massacring whites and torching plantations. Within two years, the revolt had succeeded in driving the French from power. In 1794, the newly formed revolutionary French government officially abolished slavery throughout its empire. Throughout the many long, horrific years of the French slave trade in San Domingue, the one thing the Africans who were stolen from their homeland were able to bring with them were their traditions and beliefs. One prevailing belief that sprung up during the 17th and 18th centuries among the African slaves was that death would be their ultimate release. According to popular belief, dying could possibly allow the soul to leave and release their physical forms from torment. And there could be no worse torment than that of slavery, literally having no power and no ability to control their own lives. I say possibly, though, because that wasn't always the case. In some instances there was a fate far worse than death. Many of the enslaved Africans came to believe that after they died, their souls would then be returned to Langini, which literally translates to Guinea, their term for Africa. But there was also a caveat. Many slaves came to see suicide as a viable option rather than endure one more day of subjugation and torture. But suicide also came with a terrible price. It was widely believed that by killing themselves, these poor souls were actually condemning themselves to an eternity of slavery on the plantations, trapped in their own bodies, and unable to control their own actions. Not really alive, but not exactly dead either. The slaves developed many terms for this terrible condition, and would go on to create their own mythology around this state of being as well. That term for the living dead would morph its way through many iterations until finally coming to be known as a word most of us know today. That word is zombie. I'm Nate Hale, and have you ever noticed in every zombie movie and TV show, no one ever rides a bike to escape? And this is The Conspirators.
Most of our modern interpretations of what we think of as a zombie can be traced back to slaves in Haiti from the 17th through the 19th centuries. But the idea of a reanimated corpse causing havoc is a concept that's much, much older. The earliest known form of the word zombie actually appears to date back to the Congo in the 8th century with the word nzambe, which translates to spirit of a dead person. You can find examples of other similar sounding native words as well, but they all refer to pretty much the same things. Mainly ghosts and spirits that come back to torment the living. As far back as our earliest recorded history, there seems to have always been a fear that the dead might rise again. Although the Bible doesn't contain any reference to the flesh-eating corpses we're all familiar with, thanks to Hollywood, it does contain several references to reanimated corpses. The book of Ezekiel, for example, contains a description of a vision Ezekiel has where he's dropped into a boneyard, only to have all the skeletons around him begin to shake and grow flesh and muscle once again. In the ancient Mesopotamian story of the descent of Ishtar, at one point the goddess Ishtar makes a threat that sounds an awful lot like something straight out of a modern zombie movie. If you do not open the gate for me to come in, I shall smash the door and shatter the bolt. I shall smash the doorpost and overturn the doors. I shall raise up the dead and they shall eat the living, and the dead shall outnumber the living. Across the globe, human remains have been uncovered showing signs that the people who buried them were taking steps to ensure they never got back up again. A woman's remains from a mass grave in Venice dating back to the 15th century was found with a brick shoved in her mouth to keep her from biting anyone. In 2012, archaeologists in Bulgaria uncovered the ancient remains of a man whose corpse had literally been chained to the ground. Both these cases and plenty of others like them are often cited as direct responses to fear of another type of undead creature, the vampire. But, after all, what's a vampire but a zombie with better manners? Prehistoric archaeological dig sites in Syria have turned up human remains where the bodies remained largely intact, but for some reason it appears the bodies were disinterred sometime after burial, and then had their skulls crushed with heavy stones out of fear they might get up and walk again. In fact, the entire practice of putting gravestones on graves appears to have grown up out of the idea that the stones may prevent the dead from rising back up out of the ground. In terms of our modern interpretation of what is or isn't a zombie, most of that mythology can be traced back to George Romero. It was his low-budget 1968 horror classic The Night of the Living Dead that introduced much of what we think about zombies today. The flesh-eating, the idea that zombieism is a sort of contagion spread through a bite, and that the only way you can kill a zombie is to shoot him in the head, all stems from George Romero. Of course, countless movies and TV shows all the way up to The Walking Dead have helped cement these ideas in our public zeitgeist. In truth, if we're going to get technical about it, the idea of the flesh-eating creature Romero concocted is actually a lot closer to ancient legends about ghouls than the true legends of zombies. But if we were to look back at the origins of zombies in Haiti, the zombie was actually something that was created through supernatural means, not through some blood-borne infection. During the 1700s, as thousands of African slaves were imported to Haiti to work on the French plantations, one thing the French did early on was to baptize all the slaves as Roman Catholics and forbade them from practicing any of their African religions. Any slave caught practicing any sort of religious practice that was not of the Catholic faith would be either imprisoned, whipped, or hung. 
but many slaves soon figured out a way to outsmart the French by incorporating their own beliefs into Catholic rites and rituals. It turns out there were a lot of similarities between Christianity and many of the ancient African beliefs, and in many ways the two blended seamlessly. Enslaved people began referring to this newly formed religion as Vaudou, or, as it became anglicized by the time it reached American shores, Voodoo. If you look elsewhere throughout the Caribbean, other similar religions sprung up under other names. Throughout some Caribbean islands, the enslaved people came to practice what they called Obea, while in Cuba, it came to be known as Santeria, but it's Voodoo in particular that is stuck with our public imaginations, largely from the way it was written about in pulp magazines. Many 19th and early 20th century travel writers described Voodoo as a monstrous, serpent-worshipping cult insinuating itself throughout Haiti. According to many writers, it wasn't enough that voodoo practitioners were allegedly involved in consorting with evil spirits, but they were also accused of resorting to what was considered to be the ultimate taboo, cannibalism. European explorers have a long history of describing the natives they encountered as savage cannibals. It was Christopher Columbus who helped coin the term when he encountered what was, in truth, a peaceful tribe known as the Carib whose name would eventually evolve into the term cannibal we know today. Cannibalism was considered so monstrous, it was used as justification time and again for white explorers to wipe out indigenous populations. This isn't to say that real cannibalism hasn't existed around the world. I've done a few episodes of this podcast on it before, but the number of real cannibal tribes around the world was undoubtedly exaggerated by the Europeans. And this description of savage cannibals was used once again to show how voodoo was an evil religion based on blood sacrifice. In February 1864, eight people were tried and executed in the Haitian capital Port-au-Prince for allegedly dismembering and eating a 12-year-old girl in a voodoo ritual. The evidence used against these individuals was rather dubious at best, but it was still enough to help cement the idea in the public's imagination that eating other people was a core belief of voodoo. There are no actual court records remaining from the trial, and the only major account we have of what actually happened came from a book written by an English diplomat named Spencer St. John titled The Black Republic, more than two decades later. But keep in mind, St. John was also pretty racist, and his disdain for the black Haitians is evident on every page. He went on to describe in graphic detail the blood sacrifice ritual used to dismember the young girl and cook her into a human stew. Although St. John never uses the term zombie, and almost certainly never would have heard it at that point in history, he did also describe hearing about an 1867 French reporter of a disturbed grave where the occupant managed to dig himself out of the earth and begin walking around again. The walking corpse was later stabbed through the heart and reburied. St. John scoffed at the idea that anything supernatural had occurred in this case and instead made mention of a particular type of sleeping potion which was used to place the individual into a drug state that fooled doctors into believing the man was dead. The idea that there was some sort of magic potion that created zombies is something you'll see recurring time and again throughout history. A similar story was recounted in a 1913 book by Stephen Bonsall titled The American Mediterranean, in which the author describes yet another man who was declared dead and buried, yet was later found semi-conscious, but seemingly alive later on. In that particular instance, the victim was discovered bound to a tree with barely any of his mental faculties intact, after a voodoo ritual was interrupted and his captors fled the scene. 
By that point, the man was no longer able to speak and could not explain what happened to him that put him in the state he was in. Once again, the word zombie wasn't used to describe the victim. That term wouldn't become popularized until it was used by travel writer William Seabrook in his 1929 book, The Magic Island, in which the author goes into great detail describing the voodoo cults and rituals he claimed to have personally witnessed throughout Haiti. The Magic Island would eventually go on to inspire the 1932 film White Zombie, which is often cited as the movie that sparked Hollywood's obsession with The Walking Dead. In one brief chapter, Seabrook described a ritual in which a voodoo priest known as a bokor could feed a corpse a particular powder that Seabrook said possessed the ability to revive a dead person into a shambling state, which resembled life. Those walking corpses, Seabrook said, could be found working in many of the plantations throughout Haiti. Although Seabrook didn't claim to have created the word zombie to describe these walking dead, it was his book that brought the word into the public mainstream. The idea that zombies were real was given further weight just a few years later when noted African-American author Zora Neale Hurston claimed to have seen one with her own eyes. Hurston is widely regarded as one of the most important writers from the Harlem Renaissance. It was during a trip to Haiti in 1936 that she claimed to have come face-to-face with a zombie. In her book, Tell My Horse, Hurston described visiting a Haitian hospital where she found a woman standing in the yard near a fence. The woman was huddled in a defensive position and was refusing to touch any food. She grabbed a stick from the ground and began to sweep the earth erratically. She had pulled a cloth over her head, and when a doctor tried to remove it, the woman flung her arms up and twisted them around her head protectively. The woman's name was Felicia Felix Mentor, and what was most remarkable about her was that medical records showed she had died in 1907. Hurston snapped several pictures of the woman, one of which would later be published in Life magazine. According to medical records, Felix Mentor had died 29 years earlier. She'd had a funeral and had long since been mourned and buried by her family. Her husband had remarried and her young son had grown to manhood. But then in the fall of 1936, police were summoned to a local farm where a disheveled naked woman who proved to be Felix Mentor was found stumbling around on the property where she used to live. When the current owner arrived to see who was trespassing on her land, she was astonished to realize it was her sister, Felicia, she had buried nearly three decades earlier. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. 25 Saturday nights, 50 matches, all season long on ION. Alan Gretchen-Williams slips through, here's a shot, it's in! This is a game changer for sports. Sabina takes a shot herself! See the full schedule and find where to watch at IonNWSL.com. Felix Mentor's former husband was a government official. He had her sent to the hospital where Hurston encountered her. Doctors told Hurston they believed the woman had been poisoned and that a bokor had likely given her a secret formula that simulated death. Later, the bokor summoned her back to life, heavily brain damaged, and a mere shadow of the person she had once been. Hurston described Felix Mentor this way. The sight was dreadful. That blank face with the dead eyes. The eyelids were white all around the eyes as if they had been burned with acid. There was nothing you could say to her or get from her, except by looking at her. And the sight of this wreckage was too much to endure for long. 
Stories would continue throughout Haiti over the next several decades of people who were seemingly dead and brought back to life again. In each of these reported incidents, none of these people were ever quite the same. They existed, moving around and sometimes even retaining the power of speech. But they remained mere shells of what they had once been. Francois de Valier, better known as Papa Doc de Valier, became one of the most ruthless and cruel dictators in Haiti's history during his reign as president from 1957 to 1971. He was an actual medical doctor, hence his nickname, and yet he was also a practitioner of Haitian voodoo. As a medical professional, he became famous for working to stomp out malaria and other tropical diseases plaguing his country. He rose to power by exploiting superstitions among his people and began seeking the endorsement of the Hongan priests who ran the voodoo temples throughout the rural areas. Duvalier claimed he could perform miracles and even began modeling himself in the image of Baron Samadhi, the top-hatted voodoo spirit of the dead. He began appearing in public wearing a bowler hat, black suit, black tie, and even deepened his voice to make himself sound extra spooky. An article in Life magazine once described him as looking and acting like one of the walking dead. One rumor claimed that Duvalier had become so fed up with the U.S. intervening in Haiti's affairs that in 1963 he decided to show how powerful a practitioner of voodoo he was. The number 22 was Duvalier's lucky number, and on November 22, 1963, Duvalier stabbed a voodoo doll of President John F. Kennedy 22,222 times, which, according to legend, caused President Kennedy's assassination. But Duvalier was probably most famous because of the brutally violent death squad he led known as the Tonton Makut. The name Tonton Makut was taken from a Haitian boogeyman named Uncle Gunnysack who would stuff naughty children in a knapsack and eat them for breakfast. The Tonton Makut were a combination cult, gang, and fascist militia. Members were recruited from the villages and slums and they reveled in their power to rape, murder, and torture at will. Duvalier's power over them was absolute. They obeyed his every command to such a degree that another rumor began to spread that the 25,000 members of the Tonton Makut were all zombies. Throughout his life, Duvalier made sure no one ever doubted his powers with voodoo. Anyone who dared question him would end up in one of his private torture chambers. One such torture chamber actually shared a wall with the presidential apartment, which allowed Duvalier to watch the torture through a peephole. Among Duvalier's chief torturers in the Tonton Makut was a man named Luckner Cambroni, who became known as the Vampire of the Caribbean. This was because of his side business of selling blood and body parts to medicine, which, incidentally, is also cited as helping spread AIDS throughout the country. There was also another noted torturer in Duvalier's employ named Max Adolf, better known as Madame Max, who became notorious for mutilating the genitals of political prisoners. Duvalier died in April 1971, leaving in place his son, Jean-Claude, who came to be known as Baby Doc, and who continued to rule the country for another decade with the aid of the Tonton Makut. It was all these stories about real zombies throughout Haiti that would eventually bring a cultural anthropologist and ethnobiologist to the country looking for answers. Wade Davis became famous in 1985 when he published his book, The Serpent and the Rainbow, in which he claimed to have solved the mystery of how zombies were created once and for all. 
On April 30, 1962, a man named Clairvius Narcisse stumbled into Haiti's Albert Schweitzer Hospital, complaining of body aches, a fever, and most troubling of all, the man was coughing up blood. Doctors attempted to treat Narcisse, but his condition quickly worsened. One of the man's sisters, Angelina, was there at his bedside as Clairvius slipped away and died. Two sisters confirmed his death, and Angelina was asked to sign the death certificate. Because she was illiterate, the hospital accepted Angelina's thumbprint in lieu of her signature. They buried Narcisse in a local cemetery, and the family moved on with their lives. For 18 years, that is. In 1981, Angelina was walking through the market in her village when a man approached her. She recognized him instantly. Only this was impossible. It was her brother Clairvius, older and more haggard, but him nonetheless. But that couldn't be because Angelina had been there when Clairvius died, and she had seen his body being buried. Nevertheless, it really was Clairvius Narcisse standing here before her. And according to the man himself, he had a good explanation. It turns out, he was a zombie. Narcisse was able to recall the moments leading up to his death and even what happened next. He recalled being frozen inside his own body, but still aware as people carried his corpse away and covered his face with a cotton sheet. He could recall all these moments up to and including his own funeral, during which he ended up getting a permanent scar on his cheek as a nail from his coffin sliced his face open. A psychiatrist was brought in to try to determine if Clairvius was committing some sort of fraud, but the psychiatrist was unable to determine any sort of trickery or deception on the man's part. He really was Clairvius Narcisse, and he really did believe that he died and returned to life as a zombie. Other revelations would come out over time that Narcisse had not been a good man in life. He was hated by his family for abandoning his many children and for stealing some land that rightfully should have been split with his siblings. Wade Davis, in his book The Serpent in the Rainbow, claimed that Narcisse's uncle arranged for him to be turned into a zombie. Narcisse said that after his resurrection, he was put to work on a northern sugar plantation near Ravine Trompette, owned by a powerful bokur named Joseph Jean. There, Narcisse said he toiled away each day in the fields alongside more than 150 other zombies. He said his days felt disoriented and dreamlike, and although he desperately wanted to run away and return home, he felt unable to control his own actions. According to some of the stories, Narcisse was finally able to break the spell when he was fed some food that contained salt, which helped counteract whatever had been done to him. It was a professor from the Harvard Botanical Museum named Richard Evans Schultes who began to theorize there might be a pharmacological explanation for how zombies were created. Dr. Schultes looked at many of the stories about zombification throughout history, like the one described by Zora Neale Hurston and he decided there may be something to the magical powder that Bokurs allegedly prepared to create a zombie. Schultes was too busy to head to Haiti himself to look for the zombie powder, so instead he sent his 28-year-old colleague, Wade Davis, in his place. Davis spent weeks in Haiti trying to track down a Bokur willing to share the zombie formula with him. He eventually met a voodoo practitioner named Marcel Pierre who sold him a sample of the zombie powder for a substantial amount of money. The sample, which looked like dry black dirt, contained a mixture of parts of dried toads, lizards, tarantulas, and even ground-up parts of a child's skeleton. 
Pierre explained that the powder needed to be rubbed into abrasions in the victim's skin, after which the entire body would go numb. The person would then begin to have difficulty breathing and eventually become paralyzed, causing the victim to suffocate and die from lack of oxygen. Davis soon learned creating the poison was an inexact science and every bokur had his own particular formula. Early on, Davis began to theorize that one of the key ingredients which could create the zombie-like state was datura, a psychoactive plant that can create a lethargic, dreamlike state and can even cause amnesia. It was only after further analysis of the zombie powder that he'd found traces of dried pufferfish. This, Davis came to believe, was the key. Many varieties of pufferfish contain a powerful poison known as tetrodotoxin. You may be familiar with the Japanese delicacy known as fugu. It's a particular variety of pufferfish that's only allowed to be served by highly skilled sushi chefs with the know-how to remove most of the poison before serving it to people. Victims of fugu poisoning experience symptoms that sound an awful lot like zombification. The ones that don't die outright will sometimes experience temporary paralysis for several days, leaving them in a state that resembles death. Davis came to believe that this was what was happening with the Haitian zombies. He also began to further speculate that after the effects of the tetrodotoxin wore off, the victim would wake up inside their own grave. Some of them might suffocate and die. Others might suffer brain damage from lack of oxygen before being dug up. Davis also theorized that Bokurs would then administer regular doses of Datura to the zombified humans in order to maintain their state of disorientation. From there, it was largely a psychological matter for a person to believe they were a zombie. Fear of becoming a zombie was so widespread in Haiti that victims of the Bokurs poisoning came to believe they really were undead. One other interesting fact about Datura is that some types of salts can actually help counteract the drug's effects. Clairvius Narcisse believed eating salted food helped snap him out of it. So on the surface, it definitely sounds like Wade Davis solved the zombie mystery, doesn't it? His book and the subsequent movie made from it brought the scientist worldwide fame. But almost immediately after The Serpent and the Rainbow's publication, several other scientists began crying foul. Other scientists claimed that Davis's methods lacked scientific merit and that the samples he provided didn't contain enough of the tetrodotoxin to have created the effects he claimed. No such zombie plantations have ever been found, and over the years many skeptics have claimed the story of Clairvius Marcis may be nothing more than a fraud. One thing you should know, though, Narcisse's story isn't the only one like it. In 1976, a 30-year-old woman named Francine Elias went to San Michel Hospital suffering from digestive problems, dizziness, and overall weakness. The doctors checked her out and released her, but just a few days later, Elias was pronounced dead in her home. They buried her body in the local cemetery. Then three years later, in April 1979, Francine's mother received an urgent phone call from a friend telling her that she needed to come to the local market right now. Francine's mother didn't understand what all the urgency was about, but still she rushed to the location where her friend told her to meet her. And there she had the shock of her life. She was informed that a strange woman had been found squatting in one corner of the market. When she was discovered, she was emaciated and largely unresponsive. She kept her head down and her hands shielding her face. It was only after people were able to move her hands away and get a closer look at her were they able to determine that this was... Francine Elias. 
Her mother tried bringing Francine home and nursing her back to health, but her daughter was never the same again. She remained nearly catatonic and was eventually placed in a clinic in Port-au-Prince where she remained under the care of several doctors and psychiatrists, who remained unable to coax her out of her stupor. Francine's mother clearly recognized her own daughter. She even had the same scar on her forehead that Francine had since she was a girl. And yet Francine's mother still had a difficult time equating the shell of a human being with the daughter she remembered. Even though she identified Francine's features, it just wasn't her. When she stared into this woman's eyes, there was nothing there. No awareness, no recognition. None of that spark that had once been Francine. In the eyes of the law, being turned into a zombie might qualify as an act of attempted murder. But it was also a crime of theft. Theft of the soul. Theft of free will. Theft of all the things that make an individual who they were. Francine's mother had already done her grieving years earlier, which made the current situation all that more difficult to accept. She had laid her daughter to rest, and part of her remained convinced that Francine was well and truly dead. Before she could accept that her daughter was back from the dead, she needed more proof. So she arranged for Francine's coffin to be exhumed. She hired some workmen to dig up Francine's grave. They hauled the coffin out of the ground, and the men remarked how heavy it was. They gave Francine's mother a sense of bitter hope. Perhaps Francine was inside after all, which would mean the woman they had found was an imposter after all. Francine's mother stood by nervously as the men laid the wooden box on the ground and pried off the lid. When they peered inside, they finally had their answer. There were no human remains inside the coffin. Instead, someone had loaded it with rocks. The Conspiratus is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to hear more about Haitian voodoo, then you might want to check out my Patreon account. My most recent Patreon-exclusive mini-episode is all about the 19th century trial that ended up giving voodoo its murderous reputation in Haiti. In related business, I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Susan and Lawrence for helping support the show. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our aforementioned exclusive mini-episodes. They're just like our regular episodes, only fun size. I also want to point out that we recently launched our brand new Public merchandise store where you can get all sorts of great Conspirators merchandise with a bunch of different designs. There you can find mugs, shirts, phone cases, and much, much more. If you're not on Patreon but still want to help us out, another great way you can do so is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's charts and spreads the word to more people. If you're not an Apple, not to worry, we're available on many of your other favorite podcast apps. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can hear our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Feel free to follow us or even drop us a line and let us know how we're doing. You can even email us at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.